beautiful people and welcome back to another episode of Wildcard Conversations, my little podcast where I pull random cards with thought-provoking questions for my wonderful guests. I am your host Katja Bavendam and I am so grateful for the diverse group of friends, acquaintances and strangers who come on here with open hearts and minds. What they all have in common is that they have wisdom to share, knowledge to drop, stories to tell and I am so happy to hold space for them, listen to them, sing their praises, cry and laugh with them, and share a little bit of myself as we go along. On this episode, I am joined by Connie Trin, my first Asian guest, and we truly love to see the Asian representation. You're going to witness beautiful self-reflection in action. Connie shares with me how the ego deaths she's experienced in recent years contributed to her growth, her liberation from self-imposed limits, and to her emotional resilience. She talks about her Asian upbringing, and we find some common ground between the Asian and German cultures. We realize how privileged we are to have the space to feel our feelings and the importance of giving our parents grace for not being so good at the self-awareness game. We delve into the good and bad sides of productivity and discipline. We go off on a tangent about fat phobia and somehow get to discussing what may happen at the end of our physical lives. I found Connie to be an absolutely delightful conversation partner. And as always, I hope you find joy or value or both in this episode. If you did, please leave us a five star rating, a review or share the episode with a friend. And if you don't want to miss any upcoming episodes, give the show a follow. Thank you so much for tuning in. I have so much appreciation for every single listener. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the brilliant, effervescent Connie Trin. All right, Connie, welcome to the podcast. We're acting like we Hi. didn't like we didn't just talk for an hour before this. Like, hey, welcome. Never seen you before. So thank you for being here and being down to do this with me. And as always... I'm going to tell the listeners how we know each other. We were co-workers in New York for a hot minute, but like not really because you were working remotely and I was on the way out. So um, we met for like a day or two in person in New York. You are a landscape architect, badass with a Harvard master's graduate degree. And I just met you as like a super bubbly creative person and always enjoy talking to you. And that's why I wanted to have you on my podcast. So welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. That is quite the introduction. I definitely don't feel like I live up to all of those Harvard whatever accomplishments. At the end of the day, I'm just just a gal. <laughs> But I totally feel like when we met, it was just like, sparks were flying. So I'm really excited to see like where this conversation is going to take us. I recorded one episode where I was telling my guests like, well, it was love at first sight for me. And I was kind of silence on the other end. She's like, I'll take it. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> so I'm glad we both felt the sparks. <laughs> Good way to start. Since we just already talked for a little bit before this, we set up the wild card a little bit. So out of the six categories, dreams, life lessons, exposed, courage, beliefs, and self-awareness, you felt drawn to exposed and self-awareness. Do you want to hear both of the questions that are totally random? And I had no idea what they were before. So do you want to hear both of them and then pick one? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, here's the self-awareness one. It's It's a little heavy. 
So the question is, what have you learned about life from loss or death? Okay, let that one sink in, marinate that one for a second. And then exposed, Connie, what's the skeleton in your closet? <laughs> That's a good one. Let's see. I think I'm going to go with the death one. Okay, we're talking about life. Loss. About life, life loss, loss, and death. Okay, so what have you learned about life from loss or death? I think a big one for me is ego death. That's something that I've had to really go through in the past decade, half decade, whatever. But I think for a long time, I had this image of what I would achieve in life at my age, 30. And I thought that a lot of things would come to me naturally because I'm following a particular path that was laid out. And obviously, the older you get, and no matter how hard you try and like achieve these particular goals, I've learned that it doesn't always work the way that you want it to. And the ego death has been a really important thing for me to to recognize because it's it's like a humbling of self and it's also a grounding to you don't have control as much as you want to have control over everything so i've learned a lot from just failing i guess <laughs> and it's forced me to reevaluate my relationships too because it's like who is still around after you've failed in this way and like you aren't the person who you thought you were or wanted to be so yeah i would say ego death is a big thing that i've kind of encountered in in recent years of the biggest teacher it's kind of like i guess in that sense like myself right because you're just uh, and i guess that's the topic self-awareness <laughs> like just looking at myself and reevaluating that death of who I thought I wanted to be. And it's been kind of liberating in some ways, but also terrifying because you're like, what the fuck do I do next? How do you define ego? I define ego as your perception of self and also how you view the world. And so to me, the ego is a projection of your expectations on all of your surroundings. It's this image of yourself that you want to be projected onto others as well. And the ego is, is everything, it's a culmination of everything that you've been taught in life thus far. And so it's a culmination of your expectations. It's a culmination of things that you realize you take for granted as true. And then you realize that That's only one iteration of who you could be, or that's only one iteration of the world that you've experienced so far. And the world is so vast with different experiences outside of your own. And so I feel like the older I've gotten and the more experiences that I've had, the more people I've met and the conversations that I've had, it's been part of that expansion of ego, but also like a death of the old one, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it does make sense. How many times would you say your ego has died over these past 10 years? Were there, I think when we're talking about the death of the perception of ourselves or the 
person that we want to be and how we want other people to see us, there can be little micro deaths or lose ourselves in small ways, but sometimes there's really big moments. So I'm curious to hear if there have been these big transformative moments where you really had to sit with that loss and that grief that comes from it and the redefining yourself. Yeah, that's a great question. Reflecting on that, it's probably died like a million times. <laughs> okay, maybe not a million, I'm exaggerating, but I've noticed that the most compelling or devastating maybe deaths have been the ones that are related to my relationships with other people. You know, like I was in a relationship for eight years before, which is a long time for people in their 20s. Like that's not like a normal thing these days. And I remember because when I entered that relationship, I was at the time probably like 18, 19. And I think who I was at the beginning of that relationship, you know, I was very like simple minded or I don't know, maybe not simple-minded isn't the word, maybe naive about what I thought a relationship and partnership could be like. And so at the beginning of that relationship, I had built this entire future in my mind about like, okay, we're going to get married. We're going to have the beautiful home and like the kids and all these things and everything's going to be like perfect. And we're just going to keep on keeping on. And I'm also like from my parents and my heritage, it's very like you you don't get divorced. You know, you pick one and you're together forever. And that's like deeply rooted into me. So I remember reflecting on who I was at the beginning of that relationship and then reflecting on who I was by the end. And I just had this profound kind of like realization that like, girl, you didn't know anything. <laughs> like you thought this was going to be easy. And Obviously, like throughout those like eight years, life just happened and we continued to diverge in a lot of different ways to the point where it was like, why are we even trying so hard to make something work that wasn't working anymore? And that really changed me in terms of, you know, we we're talking about like the ego and who I was. I thought I was going to be like picture perfect wife. <laughs> and then I just realized that wasn't gonna be me, at least in that relationship. And what that has looked like for me now, sometimes I still really feel really insecure about being single in my 30s. But I think it's been a healthy ego death, right? In terms of who I thought I wanted to be because it's kind of propelled me into taking larger risks, you know, like moving to a lot of different places and like meeting new people who are also in the same boat, you know? And I feel like my world has expanded outside of how I defined it before. And I'm really proud of that. Cause if not, like I would just be some like housewife in the suburbs, which no shade, you know, like it's totally fine. But I, I find that my life and who I am now is so much more enriched than I had given my permi myself permission to be before. That makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like the ego, the version of yourself that you lost and that you had to let go of, 
was the one that was given to you by your heritage, by your parents, by your own idea, by rom-coms, right? High school, sweetheart, you stay together, you get married, you get a golden retriever, you get a house with a white picket fence and one and a half kids by the time you're 32, at least. And then you realized, oh, that's not actually making me happy. And you walked away from it. And then the liberation came that it opened you up to like, oh, there's something else outside of me becoming the wife of my high school sweetheart. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, totally. And I think that definition, that old definition of me was so limiting. I also reached a point where I was like, I'm so much fucking more than, and don't get me wrong, again, like, there's nothing wrong with being, like, stay-at-home mom, housewife, truly no shade. Maybe that's my future. But at the time, and even now, it's just, like, I know and I want to be more than that. Or I know that I have it in me to contribute to this world in other ways that I think are beautiful and worth exploring. Yeah, I think that it's been productive for me. And also just Again, it's just like opened my world to meeting other people who don't make me feel like trapped in this little box. And you were mentioning how like a lot of it is informed by my cultural heritage. And it's like, yeah, like an Asian woman growing up, no one expected anything from me, you know, and I'm I'm also small, right? I'm like five foot two. And I just remember people making really, they're not ill-intentioned comments, but they're very like, oh, like she's so small. She's so cute. It just made me feel like they were looking down on me or that they didn't have any sort of expectation of what I can achieve in this world. And I don't know, some days I'm just like, I'm really proud of myself because if I just did what I was supposed to do, quote, and just stay quiet and like demure and obedient, I... Maybe I wouldn't know that I would be unhappy, but looking back now, like I feel so happy to have expanded myself outside of that. And actually knowing myself now, like I would have been miserable because I feel like there's so much inside of me that I want to express and like give to the world, right? That image of what I was supposed to be would have just eaten me up in the inside. And I probably wouldn't have had the language to express it. That's also a big thing where like expanding my world has really enabled me to expand my language and be able to express the full spectrum what the fuck I'm feeling inside. And I don't even think I'm like totally there yet. I No, I'm definitely totally not there yet. <laughs> but it feels good to grow in that way. So yeah, that was a big, in terms of like ego death, getting out of that relationship was a fucking huge can I curse? I can curse. You, you can curse. I, I'm going to have to put the little the little E next to the episode. I don't think it matters because it's not like anyone's going to try to cancel my podcast because I have 50 <laughs> listeners on a good day. So we're fine. But you can curse as much as you want. So okay. let, them, let them rip. Let them rip. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I that was a healthy and productive ego death for me. And I, I think all of my my deaths have been productive in some way because I so I'm Buddhist or philosophically I'm Buddhist and my family is Buddhist and part of that philosophy is kind of trying to separate yourself from attachment which I never really understood 
when I was younger, but the older I get and through all of these like experiences of my ego dying, <laughs> it's so dramatic when I say it that way, but like kind of, right? It's, it's like this perception of how I think things should be. It's not what actually happens. And so I'm learning to have a healthy detachment to outcomes. And with each death, it's like I feel stronger from it because I'm less devastated each time it happens. The first time, you know, I was like, I don't know, crying all the time on the floor. Just, you just can't function for like a really, really long time. But I've found that for the most part, it's not always, oh, it gets easier and easier. There's moments where it gets easier and easier and you think you think you're on top of your shit and like, you're like, oh, I'm so detached. It's awesome. And then like something hits you like a train and you didn't even know. And you're just like, oh, I'm back to square one. <laughs> like, I, I'm like embarrassed and ashamed that I felt like I became so attached to this one thing. But at the same time, you've gone through enough experiences where you know, I will get through this eventually. I think all of these experiences have made me more resilient and also just kind of healthily detached from whatever is going to happen next. I feel ready. You know, I'm like, fuck it. <laughs> like, right. I get it. I'm glad you used the term resilient because for me, what kept coming up was, yeah, that's called emotional resilience, that you go through something bad, a loss, and the initial reaction is like, oh, I, I can't live without this. And then you're there a year later, and you're like, oh, <laughs> I thought I couldn't live without this or this person or this version of myself. And here I am eating a sandwich. I'm curious, though, so you are, I think you are the first person with an Asian heritage who I have on my podcast. So yay for that representation. <laughs> Asian pride. And I'm always super curious about the um, paradox paradoxes is that the plural girl i don't know i don't know the plural of paradox in life so you have your asian parents who we've joked a little bit before we started recording are in many ways the stereotypical asian parents who are impressed by nothing and just expect very highly of their children so in a way are very attached to outcomes for their children but then your parents are also practicing this buddhism that's all about letting go of attachment to outcomes so how does that work for them that they are instilling in you this life is unfolding as it's supposed to be and letting go of attachments but at the same time putting these expectations and outcomes on you What's going on with that? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I deal with that contradiction on a pretty much daily basis. And it used to frustrate me a lot. But I also have found that the more that I give grace to that contradiction within them, and the less I fight being mad about why are you instilling this one thing on me, but practicing something different? I just kind of let it go. <laughs> it's fine. I think something that I've tried to deal with the older I get is 
minding the difference between people's words and their actions and giving grace to that. Like you and I can recognize that that's a huge contradiction, but whenever I've tried to, because I've tried to engage them about this particular topic before, it's just goes right over their head. So you're saying they haven't played the self-awareness card game yet? No, no, they've definitely have not played the self-awareness card. And why, why should they? I, they've never had to. That's okay. And I can't expect that from them. They're particular, like, so my parents were refugees. And so they have a particular life experience where their trauma has put them in this constant survival mode. And I don't think they ever really got out of that. And for me, I cannot say that I've gone through what they've gone through and would be able to maintain my sanity on the other side. So I think the older I get, it's been just acknowledging that it's a contradiction so I don't go crazy because a lot of times, and I'm thankful I have an older brother and we'll, we'll just like look at each other we're like, do you see what I'm seeing? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm grateful for that because otherwise it's crazy making, right? You don't, you're like, this cannot be just me, you know, but... I think just acknowledging it has been good for me and taking from it what I want to take from it. So I understand that what they're, the way that they're acting is different, but I do still really appreciate the values that they're trying to instill. And that still benefits me trying to move forward. So I just take from it what I want and then just leave the rest and just accept it for what it is, which is way easier said than done a lot of the times because I do get really frustrated about that contradiction. But I also am just trying to give more grace to others because life's fucking hard. <laughs> it, uh, it sure is. And I'm glad you mentioned the why would they be self-aware and that they were refugees, which I can't relate to with my parents, but similarly, we are the first generation that has time to think about our self-awareness and seek out therapy and coaching and to personal development because we don't have to worry about survival. We don't have to raise children or like survive in a post-war Europe or get on a boat to run away from terrible conditions to maybe provide our children with a better life, right? Like we can just sit here and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and talk about what we've learned from loss or death, you know? So it's like, of course they can't have those conversations, but they have accomplished incredible feats of resilience because they didn't sit there and feel their feelings. So it's just, that's another like interesting sort of like two sides of the coin type of thing that I've tried to take apart with friends. I was talking to a friend. I'm like, what is, what is the positive side of my parents being so fucking stubborn and unable to talk about their feelings? And she was like, well, your parents are like part of the generation that rebuilt Germany after World War II. So obviously, they're not going to talk about their feelings. And that's the great side of it, that they had the stamina to rebuild a fucking country. So just like your parents had the stamina to leave the terrible conditions they were in and start over and fresh somewhere. So rant over. But yes, it's it's interesting. It's definitely 
interesting in the sense too that you're talking about stamina and not feeling things and I definitely don't appreciate how much of a luxury it is to feel all my feelings all the time. I'm definitely someone who has big emotions and was not allowed to express myself growing up. But yeah, when I reflect on the things that they went through, it's very much I would not have survived if I was just like crying all the time, going through what they were going through. And I don't know, sometimes I think and I wonder, should I be more like that? Would I be farther in life if I cared less? Well, I don't know that they cared less. I think they just stuffed it down more. But I meant to say something earlier. You kept sort of saying, well, I think these ego deaths have been productive. So productivity to you, because you, you keep using that word, seems to be a measure of success for you. So it's still it's still in you, that, that mentality. I can't get away from it. It won't. <laughs> How do I get rid of that? How do I kill that? That's or what maybe, I know. Or maybe you don't kill it. Maybe embrace it. And because you just said, sometimes I wonder if I could have gotten farther in life if I had more of, of that, right? Of, of not crying and getting shit done. Well, it sounds like you've got enough of it in you if one of your yardsticks of success is productivity. So just embrace it. It's probably gotten you far in life. I mean, you do have a Harvard graduate degree after all, and you play what, like 5 million instruments approximately. <laughs> so clearly, you know how to be productive. I know, but at the same time, I can't say I haven't sacrificed anything for that productivity. There's been detriments to my health, the older I get, trying to maintain this level of productivity, at least. Maybe it's a, a matter of calibration for my expectations. So maybe it's not killing that entirely. But I do feel a little bit on the precipice of another ego death of part of me wants to kill this productivity obsession. Okay. Because I, the happiest people I know have no sense of these barometers, these fake barometers that we've set. They're just chilling. And I, I love that there's an ease to that, that I've never been able to quiet my mind enough to achieve. So how do these happiest people that you know, what are their measurements of success? Not productivity. How do they go about their life? Well, then I have to ask you because you're like so happy right now. <laughs> well, I'm just happy that I moved to Florida and I'm in the sunshine. I don't know, but I've, I think I've gone through some of that. Like I said, very different cultures, Asian and German, but kind of same in the way that work, work, work and productivity and you just put your head down and get shit done and you don't really show emotions is very much encouraged. So, you know, for me, I think it was a gift that I did move away really far away when I was 19 and got to grow into a young adult and now a slightly older adult far away from my parents. And I've gone through those same moments of, I was like, oh, we can all talk like we're adults here. I'm like, no, no, we cannot. So I'm just going to let that one go. I'm not going to try to be like, hey, I'm an adult now. Nope. Because 
in my parents' eyes, I am going to be eternally frozen as the 19-year-old who had a car crash, so I'll forever be a bad, irresponsible driver, for example, right? Where am I going with this? Oh, you're, you perceived me as this super happy person and who is very relaxed and doesn't stress herself out. I do think that I've turned a corner lately and I don't fully trust it yet because I've definitely had moments like that before where I'm like, oh, I get it now. I get it now. I didn't get it. So I think as we get older, there's always going to be moments like that where we think we get it. And maybe we do with within the limits that we are able to get it in that moment. But right now, I really feel like I'm starting to get it. I'm figuring out what brings me joy and what brings me happiness and what brings me peace. And then my ability to be productive and get up early and work hard actually gets me there. Because so the, the example of taking my stand-up paddleboard out for sunrise, that still means I have to commit to getting up at 6 a.m. and take the board out and put it in the car or on the car and get myself there. What enables me to do that is that I have been trained to be a person who can set an alarm and get up early and follow a plan and be on schedule. But then I am not choosing to do that for the things that bring me joy instead of trying to chase overtime at work or worry about what time I get to work and what my coworkers are going to think. Like I had a friend in town, this is like my third week at my job. And so I, and we have flex time, meaning you can kind of get in whenever you want within reason, obviously. But so if I can get in between 7.30 and 9.30 and I get in 9.15 and people are kind of looking at me funny and they're like, oh, glad you showed up. I'm like, well, yeah, I had a friend in town. So I just took it easy this morning. So I'm going to stay a little later. So that kind of stuff. I'm just allowing myself to set those boundaries for myself and prioritize what's bringing me joy and what's bringing me peace. I feel like I just talked a lot. Does that make sense though? No, that makes sense. I love that because what I appreciate from what you said is reframing this idea of discipline. And I think growing up, in such a regimented way, discipline has kind of gotten a bad rap in my brain where I can be kind of, uh, what's the word, rebellious towards particular rules or wanting to jump outside of that idea of what other people expect and what you need to do. And, but I feel like the way that you framed it, it's like discipline, if applied to your passions, and what you love can actually be and I almost said productive (laughs) but I can't say I can't even tell if I'm supposed to or not supposed to say productive right now if it's positive or negative but (laughs) it's both but it's 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 but yeah so I and I have struggled with the word discipline and self-discipline a lot over the past 10 years so I used to you know, be a a professional athlete. And so I was always very disciplined with following other people's schedules and things that I was supposed to do that other people told me, including the ideas that my parents had for me and society had for me, like, 
on the basketball court, off the basketball court. And when basketball went away and then when I was done with grad school and then I was, I was just kind of at this point where I was just floating in life and no one, nobody was telling me what to do. I had kind of gotten there. That was really, really hard for me because I struggled with self-discipline and struggling with seeing it as something positive because being disciplined can be really exhausting sometimes. So I, I was kind of like, I don't want to be exhausted anymore. I just want to enjoy myself. But at the same time, I'm not comfortable with just enjoying myself because I always need to climb, 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 climb. So it was a very confusing time. And so I've been for the past few years, really working on reframing discipline and seeing it as a gift I can give to myself versus a negative. I have to do what other people think I have to do kind of thing. Yeah. Totally. I think I'm going through something similar. And I've also gone on the other end where because I was so anti-discipline that I there was a time where I was just like binging TV, eating whatever the fuck I wanted because I was like, I don't care. Let me live my life. I was just trying to exhibit some sense of control, but in ways that were really detrimental to my body. I think it was at the time, though, necessary to go through because it was like, I want to show that I have the power and liberty to do whatever the fuck I want. But then at the end of the day, I was like, okay, this power move that you're pulling over yourself is not actually like serving you in any way. (laughs) It was like fun while it lasted, but then you've gained 10 pounds and you're like, yeah, this is is a problem. (laughs) Which again, no shade on Uh, stay-at-home moms also no shade on people who gain 10 pounds but I know what you mean for you it was a problem and for you it was an indicator that you weren't on the right path but then you know what I really struggle with is is it a problem because I'm making it a problem or is it really just okay like again like who the fuck cares if you gain 10 pounds why am I stressing about that I'm constantly questioning where I'm getting these ideas for myself of what is health or what is the way to be. And, you know, even you saying clocking that like no shade to 10 pounds, you're right. Why? There is no shade to gaining 10 pounds, but I've immediately kind of ascribed some sense of shame to that from that sentence. You know, like I I didn't even realize it, but I think it was so ingrained in me that I was like, oh, fuck, like I just gained 10 pounds. And that's I don't necessarily think that's a great thing either. And so I am challenging myself to be like, are your values really like, I don't really care how much someone weighs, you know, or what, I don't want to care how much I weigh to like change the way that I value myself. I don't know. I think I just ranted, but. <laughs> no, please, this is a, this is a safe space for ranting. And I'm right there with you because I do think that weight I think what you said with that sentence was for you, that was an indicator that you were, you had slipped into unhealthy habits because you're someone who is, who naturally doesn't struggle with weight. So when you started to noticeably gain some weight, that was an indicator for you that you personally were in an unhealthy track. That's what I heard. But also I appreciate your rant about all of that because I've recently been exploring my own inherent biases maybe towards fat people. I think we're allowed to say that. 
I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about it. I think we're allowed to say the word fat. That's not a derogatory term. That's just acknowledging that some people are fat. So this whole idea of does fat always mean unhealthy? Does fat mean bad habits? Does fat mean lazy? Like, I think it's as deep within us as other unconscious biases. So it's just an interesting thing to explore and check yourself on every once in a while that when you see it in yourself, some weight gain, or, you know, maybe you see friends that have gained some weight and just check in with yourself what your initial reaction is and if there's any judgment attached to it. Yeah, I agree. That initial comment, when I think back to it now, is like, was it fat phobic to say that I'm unhappy with gaining 10 pounds? And I just, yeah, I want to check myself because I don't want to say things and just regurgitate standards just because that's the way it has been. But for me, 10 pounds is a lot just because percentage wise of how much I'm like a small girl. So like it, it's within the amount of time that that happened. I don't even think that's a healthy thing. Right. A- and that's also okay. It's, it's all nuanced. Maybe it's both. Maybe Maybe in that comment of, well, I gained 10 pounds and that was a problem. Maybe there was some deep unconscious fat phobia in there. And at the same time, it legit was an indicator for you that you had done some unhealthy shit for yourself. I think they can both exist at the same time. Or maybe you're not fat phobic at all. I don't know what goes on in the back of your brain. But we probably all are because we have been fat that fat people are bad for a long time, I think. Yeah, and it's, I mean, and we've found that that's wrong, right? There's no, like, super, super skinny people are also very unhealthy. You know, it's, they're very healthy on the other end of the spectrum as well. Or you can have someone who hits all the traditional Western beauty standards, the six pack and whatever, and beautiful skin and whatever, and they can internally be very unhealthy, both physically and mentally and emotionally. So what the fuck is healthy even? We don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And then to even just like tie it further back, I don't know what my body's going to do when I get older. And that might just be the natural course of events. And I mean, when we were talking about ego death before, I guess I was like more mental, but I think part of it is also like physical perception of I'm not going to be young forever and how I navigate through this world might change as my body changes. And I think this ego death thing is just going to keep on happening forever. These continuous cycles of birth, death, and rebirth, you know, just like this cycle. But I think that's a beautiful thing because that's you embracing change also, which a lot of people are reluctant to, myself included. It took me a long time to make this change to move when I was out of alignment for probably three years. But when you look at nature and just the world, can you imagine, I mean, I'm not going to have seasons down here in Florida, but in the Northeast. There are these beautiful seasons, right? Can you imagine if the trees said, oh, no, I don't want to lose my leaves, you know, after winter, like, oh, no, I don't want all this blooming. If nature and the universe and all the rhythms of the world had human egos and were trying to fight change, 
it would be really fucking weird. We're like the only species who's constantly just fighting change and resisting it when we should just let it happen. Wait, I like am obsessed with that imagery of a tree having an ego. That's a really great observation that humans kind of are the only species probably that has this abstinence. I think that's also probably what distinguishes us from other animals and plants is that we have the the consciousness and the self-awareness and the conscious ability to do that, which is, again, dark side and bright side of the coin. It's both a gift and what, I guess, brings us to the top of the food chain, but also puts us in like really weird, dark places that we don't need to be in. I feel like we're creating a space for random rants today and I'm into it. So let's just keep going with it. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting too, because we're talking about this human brain, crazy, cyclical darkness, whatever. And then no matter how resistant we are to change, it's funny because like the end of the day, if you don't go through the ego death, whatever, but like you will die, die. (laughs) You're going to die. And you, you're gonna die. <laughs> and you don't know when. You don't know how many years and how many ego deaths you're going to go through. This is where the Buddhist in you comes out. It's so true though. And there's no there's no resisting that. You just have to accept that. Another stereotypical image or metaphor for all of that is of course the butterfly just in there just this ugly little thing and then (laughs) hanging out in this cocoon somewhere and then just turns into this beautiful airy divine being to die real quick (laughs) they have really short lives but nobody thinks about that nobody's like oh my god this poor butterfly had to go through all this struggle to become this beautiful being and then how sad that it only has this short life we're just kind of like wow look at that beautiful butterfly so Maybe we can do that for ourselves. It's kind of cool thinking about being able to go through multiple cycles of rebirth and death within our own limited lifespan that yeah. we have on this. I like thinking about it that way because then, I don't know, there's just something really poetic about that that gives me hope. <laughs> I agree. And we have the well, all that, I guess, self-awareness and ability to evaluate ourselves and us even talking about it. It also means that we have some influence on how we reinvent ourselves and we don't just react. We can, instead of reacting, we can respond and be intentional. So yay, that's a gift. Yeah. And I'm just grateful because I didn't always have this language about ego death and thinking of it that way. Every time something happened, It really did feel like the end of the world. And so this framing has been helpful for me because one, I feel less alone because I know that everyone's kind of going through these changes. And also that, again, it's just broadened my perception of myself and who I can be. And I'm I'm just really grateful for that because not a lot of people really get that opportunity. You know, we were talking about our families for and our upbringing. And I think about them not pushing themselves to be able to like experience the full, well, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't want to like say that they're not experiencing the full spectrum of emotions and not to say that their experience is any less enriching than ours. So maybe I just leave it at that and just say that I'm grateful that I can have 
a different experience. <laughs> Just leave it at that. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to check myself again. <laughs> This is just a series of ranting and then checking ourselves here. Beautiful. Well, the reason why I'm like constantly checking myself is because I just want to be aware that my experience is my own. And I really am not here to tell other people how to live their life. You know, whatever fucking makes you happy. <laughs> like, this is just my crazy, hyper ambitious, productivity focused brain. This is what I need to do and think about and frame in order to like survive in this world. That's just it, you know? Hey, you can frame things however you want. This is a safe space to not always say the perfect thing and just be your yourself, your productive, bright. What was the word you used earlier? Not on the recording. Effervescent. Effervescent. Yes. Thank you. So this is a safe place for you to be your bright, brilliant, effervescent self. And I'm happy that you're bringing it. Well, thank you for creating the space for me to be that way. I don't, I've never done a podcast before. I don't really talk a lot usually. I, I'm so much in my brain most of the time. So I was kind of nervous. I was like, what if I have nothing to say? I, I was a little bit concerned about that. But I feel like talking to you specifically, I felt very comfortable to just be like rambly and all the things that didn't make sense. But it is what it is. Okay, so I have a follow-up question on the ultimate death that we're all going to experience, which is our physical death. Yeah. You, with your Buddhist upbringing and the way you see the world, to you, what happens at the end? What happens when we physically die? Hmm. This has changed for me throughout the years. I used to believe in heaven and... These days, I just think we die and we become ashes and our ashes become part of this world and then we become trees and it's just a cycle. And I don't think I believe in reincarnation per se. You're a Buddhist who doesn't believe in reincarnation? No, that's, yeah, I don't feel like I believe in reincarnation. <laughs> There's this poem that I really love. And I, I can't recite it right now. I'd have to look it up. But it's about this idea of heaven where, you know, wherever we end up, it's going to be all of your favorite people and everyone you've ever loved is going to be there. And I love the sentiment of that because it, to me, is indicative of a sense of peace, even if it's not literal, this idea of people floating in the clouds and you're going to be there. But when I think of when I die, I want to feel at peace with my time here and be able to, whatever death looks like in that moment, just reflect on all of the beautiful relationships and friendships I've made. And But then that's it. My experience was my own and it will never be replicated. I don't think it transfers to another being. I'm just going to turn into ashes and my ashes will continue to live on in this world. Would you, because now I'm super curious, would it be easy for you to find that poem right now? Yeah. Let me see if I can find it. It's funny because it was on a MTA train. Oh, I love the MTA for those who are not from New York. That's the name for the subway system. So they have... On the subway trains in New York City, they will have poems pinned up for all the stressed out commuters to enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was like having a hard day and I was just like sitting on the train and I saw this poem and I was like, wow, that's really beautiful. I've and had that just, experience. Yeah, it just was, it just set me right. I was like, okay, whatever I'm feeling right now, doesn't matter. 
So the poem is called Heaven by Patrick Phillips, and it is, it will be the past and we'll live there together, not as it was to live, but as it is remembered. It will be the past, we'll all go back together, everyone we ever loved and lost and must remember. It will be the past and it will last forever. That's the poem. I'm going to have to re-listen to that when I edit this episode, but it is really beautiful. Maybe I should have said it slower. You want to do it again? Sure. Okay. It will be the past and we'll live there together. Not as it was to live, but as it is remembered. It will be the past. We'll all go back together. Everyone we ever loved and lost and must remember. It will be the past and it will last forever. Hmm, that's nice. To me, it's like coming home. I feel like that's a common theme, no matter what religion or philosophy you subscribe to. Whether it's Christian, there's a lot of times the terminology or the language is used of, oh, he or she is home with Jesus. And then I personally believe that the soul, I do believe in reincarnation and that the soul leaves the physical body at the point of death. And that the soul then goes home into wherever the souls live (laughs) and gets to like hang out there for a while and just kind of relax with all the other souls before it then goes back down into the physical world. But yeah, the past as a, as a positive remembrance, I like that sentiment. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. I love that you connected it to the sense of being home because that's what I'd like to think the end is like. There's comfort in, you know, it talks about like the past as it's supposed to be remembered, right? And I think it's like taking stock of all of the beautiful things that you've experienced throughout life. And the biggest thing from that is being at peace with it. Do you think that's because the ultimate thing that you get to is peace? Do you think that that's why... The actual dying can be so ugly sometimes. (laughs) Not to make it super dark, but like, you know, I recently had my experience with my senior dog passing away. And I was like, man, death itself, like the act of dying itself is not peaceful. And I think that applies to most animals, including humans. And I was talking to a friend who sat bedside with her mother in hospice who had had a long battle with cancer. And she was like, yeah, it's just it's just fucking horrific when you see the body deteriorate. Like it's not peaceful, but then immediately after it's peaceful, right? I don't know. I just had this experience where I'm like, yeah, it's, I think this idea of coming home matches what happens in the physical world is maybe a bit of a Hollywood version that happens maybe in 1% of cases. I don't know. Have you ever been with a person at the end of their life? I have. And I don't know if it was peaceful because when when someone's in the hospital and they're under, right? And I can't really say if it was peaceful or not because I don't know what the brain was doing in those last moments. So it's hard for me to say. I think what is interesting is you were talking about the end being so ugly and maybe like this peace in heaven is the redeeming factor after 
such an, an ugly thing. And I don't know, I think rather than like comparing it to what it was your life right up to the end, if it's ugly or beautiful, whatever, probably. <laughs> that's, that's the probably only ugly. word that came to mind. <laughs> I feel like the piece that you achieve at the end is more of like a retrospective of the entirety of your life, which maybe this is just like the optimist in me wanting to believe that even if there were shitty things that happened or right up until the end was a shit show and horrible that, oh yeah, this is so corny, but like there's a miracle. <laughs> like, oh, it's not corny. It legit is. I think this perception of the end of life being kind of like a celebration or a, a moment to take stock of all of the beauty that you experienced is a reflection of that idea that life is really shitty a lot of the times but at the end of the day it also has so many beautiful moments to, to be celebrated and now I'm checking myself again kind of like I don't know maybe some people's lives are really <laughs> <laughs> it's okay my eternal brain I'm always constantly just like ah. <laughs> I think you're allowed to say that life is in most cases there's cause for celebration I think it was funny when I was leaving New York and had to work through some sadness and some, you know, good friends being sad, a little going away party. And I was like, this is not a funeral. It's a celebration of life. <laughs> I hope that at the end of my actual life and not just my life in New York, I'm going to have the same attitude where maybe I can leave the people that I'm leaving with that sentiment. Like, hey, don't make it a funeral, make it a celebration of life. I love that, honestly. And so many other cultures actively engage in that. I think the Irish do that i want to say certain african cultures like i'm pretty sure like Jurian funerals are more of like a dance and i could be wrong but definitely irish people they're just like throwing back and just partying celebrating the life of whoever you know it's it's maintaining that memory in a positive light i hope my end is like that too i don't want people to be sad it's like a waste well i mean i hope they're a little sad <laughs> you know <laughs> I don't want them to be like, yeah, thank God she's done. <laughs> it's a compliment kind of when people are sad that you're leaving, I guess. I don't know. It's just a major like ego stroking. Speaking of egos, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we're all about the celebration of life. So yay, go life. Life is a miracle. But also grief is good sometimes. Yes. Oh, so this was the other thing that just came to mind. I don't know the... English translation. I'm going to have to look this up right now. There's a German word back in the day, like in the olden times, I don't know, like medieval times or something. Okay. Enter typing noise. Oh God, that's a really bad translation. So anyway, there were these women who had the job to support people in grieving. So they were basically professional criers, professional, like sad people. What? That's awesome. A professional mourner. Yeah. Okay. That's a good translation. So they would be attending funeral processions to like help people bring out their grief and their emotions and put some like some emotion in it and, and to help people get it out instead of just like standing there and moping around and looking sad. It really allowed them to get out their grief and then move on. So maybe it's that. Maybe like the ideal end of life celebration is a good cry session and just get all that sadness and grief out and then turn up the party. I love that. I'm 
all about a good cry session and a party. There's also somewhere in life coaching, I didn't get to do this in class, but I think somebody mentioned that there's an exercise of writing your own eulogy while you're alive. That's oh. that can be a good check in self reflection exercise to see what what you want to say about you and where you at with that. So, that. you know, it's like Katya spends two hours every night watching Instagram reels. That's not what I want in my eulogy. <laughs> no. There'd be nothing wrong if you did. Because there's no right or wrong. We support everything here. <laughs> Safe space. Okay. It's getting late. And maybe we need to check ourselves on our ranting here. What an elegant segue into <laughs> the final question. So, Connie, my final question to all of my guests is, then, 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 what is your greatest gift to the world? Wow, that's a great question. And my initial response is, I don't know. So let me think about it. I'm glad your initial response was not productivity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a machine and everyone should be grateful. No, <laughs> I think my greatest gift to the world is empathy. And I think we just need more of that, honestly. I think we get caught up in all these ideas of, you know, Again, like ego, to bring it back to that, it's just, we have all these ideas about who we should be, who other people should be, and none of that really fucking matters. I think someone made it up one day, and we're just following these crazy rules that probably some old white guy made up. <laughs> I think having empathy for others and making people feel comfortable and safe with whoever they might be in that moment is just something we need more of, because everyone's fucking stressed out or everyone is anxious and I don't know if I'm writing my eulogy that's what I would want to be known for just being someone who's compassionate and caring and that's how I always want to show up in every space that I enter and I don't always succeed in that both towards other people and towards myself but it's I think the gift in always wanting to try is also something that's not everyone I've met really pains themselves to really do. Like I probably drive myself crazy over it more than other people, but it's really important to me. And I'm glad it's an ideal that I aspire to do and be. So yeah, that's it. Empathy, empathetic. I love that journey for you. And yes, The world needs more empathy. So thank you for always showing up with empathy in mind, even if it drives you crazy. You're welcome. <laughs> This is the part where we awkwardly end the podcast. So thank you again, Connie, for your time and your energy and your rants and checking yourself and your empathy. You are a gift. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. <laughs>